0: Paxlovin, an oral antiviral available through the FDA Emergency Use Authorization, is the latest treatment for COVID-19. It could be a game changer. And on this episode of our award-winning podcast, we'll discuss the evidence from clinical trials around Paxlovin. Welcome to Modern Practice. I'm your host, Dr. Tom Villanueva, Senior Principal for Operations and Quality at Visient, and joining me again for a repeat appearance is Dr. Stacy Lauderdale. Stacy, it's been too long. Welcome back to the program.
1: Yeah, glad to be back. Thanks for having me again.
0: So why don't you remind us about your background and what you do at Vizient?
1: Sure. So background, I'm a pharmacist, specifically a drug information pharmacist. And here at Vizient, I'm the senior director of drug information. And I have a team of drug information pharmacists, and we basically prepare evidence-based medicine deliverables. We review drugs, therapeutic controversies, drug class reviews. And during COVID, we spent a lot of time looking at the literature around COVID-19 vaccines as well as treatments.
0: So let's level set here. Tell us briefly about Paxlovin, exactly what it is and the history of this development. Keep in mind, I've actually prescribed quite a few cases myself.
1: So it's a combination of two drugs. Mm -hmm. The first is Nirmatrelvir, which is a SARS-CoV-2 protease inhibitor. And it also consists of Rotonavir, which is an HIV-1 protease inhibitor, as well as a CYP3A4 inhibitor. And the main role of Rotonavir is to boost Nirmatrelvir. So the history of it is it was approved under emergency use authorization in December of 2021 for the treatment of adults and pediatric patients 12 years in age and older who have mild to moderate COVID-19 who have at least a risk factor for progression to severe illness.
0: So there's a lot of comparison with Tamiflu, but it actually, other than just being an antiviral, it, it's really a different drug it, on how it affects. Can you tell us a little bit the difference between Tamiflu and Paxlovid?
1: Sure. So we could do a whole podcast on Tamiflu, but...
0: Right. (laughs) Maybe we will.
1: Uh, Maybe we will. (laughs) I would refer your readers. There's a great kind of article on Tamiflu that recently came out in the British Medical Journal. But Tamiflu, if you look at it, sure, it's an antiviral, but in my opinion, its effects are very modest. Right. At best, it reduces symptom duration by maybe a day. As far as its effect on more clinically impactful outcomes, such as hospitalization, secondary complications of influenza, pneumonia. There's really no evidence that it impacts those outcomes. When you look at Paxlovid, on the other hand, there is data that it impacts those clinically meaningful outcomes such as hospitalization and death. But the caveat there is in certain patient populations. Can
0: you tell us a little about that specific patient population?
1: Sure can. So maybe what we can do here is get into the randomized control trials that were conducted for its EUA. So there are two. EPIC-HR and EPIC-SR. And HR stands for high-risk individuals. And the EPIC-HR trial was conducted during Delta, and it was conducted in patients who were unvaccinated, immune-naive, who had at least one risk factor for progressing to severe illness. And in this patient population, this drug was amazing, a 6% absolute risk reduction in hospitalization and death. And that's amazing. And if you look at that relative, it's in the high 80s. Now, the EPIC-SR, and this trial is not published, so this is just high-level information that Pfizer has released. This trial was conducted in standard risk patients, so those patients that weren't necessarily at a high risk of progressing to severe illness. It also included a small subgroup of vaccinated individuals, and we'll get to those later on, but those patients did have at least a risk factor for progressing to severe illness. And in this patient population, there was no significant effect of Paxlovid on hospitalization and or death. Now you could argue there was a non-significant trend, but the trials results were not significant.
0: And then can you elaborate more on the patients that were vaccinated? Because I'll be honest with you, among the greater majority of the patients whom I'm used it on were vaccinated.
1: In the EPIC-SR trial, there was a small subgroup of vaccinated individuals who had at least one high risk factor for progressing to severe illness. And in this subgroup of patients, we had an absolute risk reduction of hospitalization and/or death of about one percent in those that were treated with Paxlovid. Again, you have to remember that this trial occurred during the Delta variant, right? So that effect size may be smaller with Omicron.
0: So what we've seen with Omicron specifically is pretty much it's escaping the effects of vaccination at this moment. But have we seen any trials or even some observed studies on how Paxlovid is done with Omicron?
1: There's quite a few real-world evidence emerging, and I always say real-world evidence is imperfect. So let me first say that there's confounders, etc. But there are two real-world studies that I like to bring up. They both occurred during the BA1 surge in January. One was conducted at Mass General in the United States, and the other was recently published In the New England Journal of Medicine, it was conducted in Israel. And in both of these trials, they do show a modest effect of Paxlovid on reduction in at least hospitalization. They didn't really evaluate death. That wasn't one of the endpoints. But in the Mass General study, highly vaccinated, 87% vaccinated in this cohort, median age 62, we had a 0.3% absolute risk reduction in hospitalization. In the Israel cohort, it was a much larger absolute risk reduction, but it only occurred in those 65 and older. We didn't really see a significant effect in those under 65, regardless of immune status.
0: So Stacy, for our non-clinician listeners, can you kind of elaborate more on why real-world studies sometimes are considered not as accurate versus RCTs?
1: In a randomized controlled trial, a patient is randomly selected to be in the treatment or non-treatment group. And when that occurs, you are level-setting baseline confounders or risk factors that may affect a treatment. In a real-world study, because a patient isn't randomly selected to be treated, instead they are treated because the physician decided they were going to be treated, you are concerned that the baseline risk factors may be different between the treated and untreated. And so what you may be observing instead of the effect of the drug, you may simply be observing the effect of some sort of baseline risk factor.
0: See, that makes sense to me. So in in other words, I'm actually putting into the pot physician misalignment with prescribing it appropriately to the right patient, the patient not taking the medication appropriately. I'm pretty much, I'm just mixing in all these factors that I have no control over as the researcher versus when a random controlled trial, I do. And if a patient say doesn't take the drug, then I exclude that patient from the study. So I know the real effects of the drug itself. Absolutely. Okay. So let's go back before we talk about rebound. The comment you made about in the real-world studies that there was more effect seen among patients over the age of 65 versus those that were younger. And we know that those are the most highest risk of over 65. Do you believe that pretty much has the case since they're the ones that tend to get the sickest? That's why we didn't see that much of an effect on younger patients?
1: I think so. Throughout this pandemic, we've known from early on that age- tends to be the highest risk factor for progression to severe illness. And even in the Mass General study, they looked at progression of hospitalization and untreated. And what they found was age was a significant factor there as well. In their study, they actually found it was a cutoff of 80 and older. Where that cutoff is, though, I'm not sure, right? Because the Israel study just grouped it at 65 and older. So it could have been higher. It could have started at 65. But yes, absolutely, Age is, in my opinion, one of the strongest risk factors for progressing to severe illness.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So let's jump right into rebound because I'm sure that's why the greater majority of people are listening to this podcast today to understand that more. Highly publicized since the president got rebound. I've certainly seen it in about 10% of my patients who I've prescribed a drug for. I believe we don't fully understand the reasons behind rebound. So can you kind of inform us on what you believe or what the data is actually telling us right now?
1: So... We don't know a lot of things. I would argue we don't even know the incidence of rebound.
0: So you're making me feel better. I appreciate that.
1: Okay. So I think, though, the fact that you said 5%, that's interesting because there was a case series from Case Western, and they say about 6%.
0: I believe it's around 10% of my cases. I'm just guesstimating. I didn't really sit down and do the math.
1: And I've heard other experts say 5 to 10%. Interesting. So why does it happen? Like, who knows? We're really uncertain why it happens. There's a lot of different theories that have been put forward. The first theory is that this is just the natural course of COVID-19 in some individuals. So the active 2 trial actually looked at the course of both symptom and viral rebound in patients who were untreated, who had COVID-19. And in these patients, we saw 12% have viral rebound, 10% have symptomatic rebound. So regardless of treatment, it may just happen. The second thing is there are a lot of folks out there that are saying, we just don't treat it long enough. Right. Five days is not a long enough treatment. And there's been many case reports that have evaluated, you know, why did somebody have a a rebound? And what they found is it has nothing to do with resistance. And probably it's more likely due to the fact that the treatment course was not long enough.
0: Right. I kind of feel that that may be what's necessary, but right now, rebound does not have an FDA indication to restart the medications. That's correct. All right. And per se, in most patients, yeah, they may have symptoms, but patients who have had rebound, I'm not aware that a large proportion of these patients end up having severe disease. It's just some some symptoms, but they don't end up having this severe disease, if that's what the data is telling us as well.
1: Yeah. So I don't know that there's been a case of severe rebound. I mean, certainly transmission can occur during rebound. I think that's our biggest concern is making sure if you have rebound, quarantine yourself. But even in patients that are untreated, it's very rare, less than 2% for a patient to have a severe rebound.
0: Really good, Stacy. Fantastic work. And thanks for the discussion. We'll continue in our next episode when we'll talk about interactions and best use of Lobin. And to our listeners, you can contact Stacy at her email in the resource section of the podcast page. And if you have any additional questions pertaining to modern practice or simply want to send us your comments, please contact me at our email at modernpracticepodcast.com. We've posted a link in our resource section as well. And please join us for other Modern Practice podcasts. Subscribe today like us, or send us your comments. I'm Dr. Tom Villanueva. Thank you so much for listening.